Amen. So tonight should be, uh, should be immensely practical and helpful for you by the time we get to the end. So when you leave and go home tonight, you should uh, be really thinking to yourself, all right, I can do this. I know what to do. I know how to do it. And all of us can, uh, can improve for sure in this arena. So we are uh, at the end of chapter 3, moving into the beginning of chapter 4. And as we get started tonight, I want you to, to first just think to yourself about who it is. What do we know Every week, we've been talking about different things about Paul and about Timothy and about the situation, about the context and the circumstance. But tonight, I just want us to to think about Paul as a person and think about how all of us, all of you in here have a Bible, and in your Bible, uh, there's no doubt maps. Usually in the back of your Bible, you'll find these maps that chronicle the travels of Paul. And so we're talking about a person who travels so much that we have maps to follow where he is. And every time we turn to another one of the 13 books that he wrote in the New Testament, he's in a a different place or writing to a different place or dealing with people from a different place. So it would be fair to say that the Apostle Paul lives a very nomadic life. He's always on the move. And when he's not on the move, it's usually because he's incarcerated. So with that in mind, you would think that a person who is always on the move, and when they're not on the move, they're in jail, would not be a highly relational person. He, he wouldn't have the opportunity to build deep, abiding, long relationships, friendships. He wouldn't have deep community with people because he's always in new places. But yet... It is the exact opposite. And one of the things that's really struck me as I prepared for this passage of Scripture and the section of Ephesians that we're going to look at Sunday is just how over and over again the Word of God reminds me of how relationally rich Paul's life was. It's just an amazing thing that we, we make so many excuses in our time for why we don't have the relationships we feel like we should. We're too busy. We're too this. We're too that. We don't, you know, we're, it's, but yet the Apostle Paul would have every reason in the world. And yet we see that, I mean, look, this, this letter that he's writing to Timothy I mean, I don't want to be crude, but you talk about close. He circumcised Timothy. Acts 16. That's a level of friendship I don't think I want to experience. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's closeness. That's what I'm saying. So... When he says, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. 
which most scholars believe is really the, the thesis statement of this whole letter. He gives the purpose for why he's writing it. So if he's delayed, here's the purpose that you would know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, which is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, which I think we ought to bring the word buttress back. We ought to start using that in just everyday conversations and enjoy the look on people's face when you throw that one out there. So I've been practicing different ways I can use that to the astonishment of whoever it is I may be talking to. But anyway, here's what he's saying. He's saying, what I want to say to you, I don't want to say over the phone. I don't want to say in a text message. I don't want to send you an email. I really want to say it face to face. But I may not be able to because you know my lifestyle, Timothy, as well as anybody. And you know that I'm God's vessel and he moves me where he wants, the way he wants and however he wants. And so I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this. So I'm writing you this in case. Now, here's what I want us to begin by thinking about. God's children are to live God's way, and that way is directed by God's truth. So what we've seen is that there's some false teaching that's entered into the church at Ephesus. Paul's been dealing with that. Last week, Pastor Brian went through the detailed qualifications of those who serve as elders, and we've seen before that the the way that God has determined for the church to function with regard to role in the church and how it uh, mimics his uh, work in creation. And on and on and on. Every week it's been building this issue of uh, truth and how we are to be keepers of the truth and, and that the church exists to be a pillar, a foundation for the truth. And we are to live... God's way, but we can't do that. We won't do that. There's no chance that that's going to happen unless we're directed by the truth, which means we have to know the truth, which means we have to protect the truth. So all of these things link together. Now, what Paul's going to give us is a prescription to prevent Phariseeism, which is technically not a word, but you get the point. That's what this prescription is. And the thing about Phariseeism is, and one of the things that hopefully you will walk away with tonight, is the understanding. See, a lot of of you have a background where you were exposed to legalism in some sort. Your religious context uh, in the past, maybe you grew up in a church or whatever the case may be, but you have this as so many do in the Bible Belt, this background of exposure to legalism. And one of the dangers with legalism is that people in the church have a tendency to think of legalism as, you know, it's bad and it's unhealthy, but it's not like false teaching. It's not like heresy. Well, I think that's a huge mistake. And I think that's a, a, a lie that you should make sure you slay in your heart because the enemy will use that against you. Because those of you who have come out of legalism, you know, and, and I would say that most of you that have been exposed to legalism aren't out of it. 
You're not. And you know you're not. Because you know the decades of work it takes to get out of it. It is a uh, debilitating, evil virus that, impa- that, that gets inside of you. And it, it's, it's in there. And it takes a long time to work itself out. And it's no different than if you had come out of a cult. It really isn't. It's going to take the same amount of work. So if you had grown up in a Mormon family or a Jehovah Witness family, and we tend to think of that in one category and then legalism in another category, they're not different. They're not different. They're equally damaging. Now, here's what we need to understand that I'm not saying. I'm not saying bad theology and heresy are the same thing. Because what the other thing you need to realize is that we all have bad theology. We just hopefully don't know what it is. But none of us have perfect theology, and, and none of us will ever have perfect theology until we get to heaven. And so there's a difference between bad theology and legalism and heresy. Legalism is not bad theology. It's heresy. That's what it is. And it affects you the same way as any other deviation from the gospel. You read the book of Galatians, and Paul is very clear with us about any deviation from the biblical gospel is the same. It's all heresy. So like if you grew up believing that God was this God who was watching over you with a big stick, just waiting for you to mess up so he could whack you on the head. You know, I deal with this all the time with, in premarital counseling, where uh, especially, it, it, it's interesting how, how legalism affects males and females so differently. But if you grew up in a legalistic environment, a young lady who, who was exposed to that, uh, then as she's going into marriage, she has all these mixed up ideas about, you, you know, she feels all these uh, anxieties about things that she shouldn't feel anxious about in a marriage. But her whole life she's felt this way, and so it's, it's a problem, which we're going to talk about some of that in a few minutes. But the point is, you know, those of you that have been in it, it doesn't, uh, you know, that, that's one thing I can say that, uh, you know, you know my testimony that I certainly had my share of struggles in my childhood, but I was never exposed to legalism because I wasn't in church at all. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to defrag all of that. I just came to the Bible with a blank slate and just started reading it and taking it for what it said. I didn't have any context. Whereas my wife, on the other hand, I mean, I've watched her struggle and you can, you can, I mean, of course, we don't do this, but if we did, I know what would happen because we've been in environments where, it, where it's happened over the course of 30 years of marriage where if we maybe visit some church or go to some place or whatever and there's somebody who is speaking and it's a, from a legalistic perspective, I can literally see her countenance. Now, I mean, we're talking 30 years. 
And it still affects her. Like she wants to just run out of the room. It's, it's crazy. So this is what we're dealing with. Verse 16. So great indeed, he says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Then he's going to give us these six statements that group together two by two by two. He's going to say, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. So they go together. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. They go together and then believed on in the world and taken up into glory and they fit together. So let's start with the first part, a mystery. So just like we've talked about in Ephesians, a mystery is not what we typically think a mystery is. It is not this this uh, unknowable thing. It's not like we're searching for some mysterious thing. In the Bible, a mystery is something we can know with God's help. That's what it is. It's knowable. We just don't know it or we haven't known it, but we can with God's help. Because if we couldn't know it, then he wouldn't be... See, the things in the Bible that we can't know aren't called a mystery. The Bible says no one knows or you can't know. Mystery is always something we can know. So that's important. But really what I want to focus on is that word godliness. So when he says the mystery of godliness, that's a very specific word in the Greek, eusebia. That word, it it means an internal reverence for God that is externally visible in how we live. So it's something internal that can be seen externally and you cannot separate the two. The word cannot just mean something you see on the outside and it cannot mean something that happens on the inside. It's always one that results in the other. So you could sum that up by saying there's a mystery that God has revealed that will enable me to worship him so deeply that I am transformed by what I know about him. Now that's very important for you to get that little summary statement that I put in italics there for you because that's what I want you to go home tonight with. I want that To become a reality. I've prayed today that God would make this a reality in our hearts in this time that we have together. It's something that I can understand when God explains it to me. When the gospel reveals it to me. So, let's look at these these different groupings of... So, first we have, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. So in your handout, we confess that he was revealed by his incarnation and resurrection. That's part of the mystery. But now if we want to dive in a little bit deeper, he was manifest in the flesh. So what happened was God the Father gave the Son through the Spirit or placed the Son through the Spirit into the womb of Mary. Mary is a virgin. Mary has to be a virgin because if Mary's not a virgin, then Jesus 
is created just like uh, me and you. But he's not. He's God. So it, it has to be the way that it is. And when you think about it, God comes in the flesh. Prior to his incarnation, he had never slept. He had never, he had never, he had never experienced the sensation of being thirsty or hungry or tired or even frustrated. But he restricted himself in the flesh. Now, think about it. He wasn't, God could have supernaturally incarnated himself as a 33-year-old man and went to the cross. But he didn't because that would have been insufficient. And why would that have been insufficient? Because what, what would God have accomplished See, God, God had to live the life that we couldn't live in order to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. If he just came and died, he didn't live the life. So those 33 years were important because those were 33 years that he was tempted, yet he didn't sin, right? So I don't want to, you know, belabor this point, but have you ever thought about the fact that you can't kill God, but he came in the flesh so that, so that we could? It had to be that way. So he's manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. So how is he vindicated through the spirit? The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How can God, who can't, according to the book of Isaiah and everywhere else in the Old Testament, who can't be in the presence of sin, indwell sinful people like me and you? He has to be vindicated in the spirit. In other words, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive of his victory, his vindication. And the presence of the Lord in us pr proves beyond a shadow of a doubt what? That our sin has been forgiven, which means that he was victorious. That's why it's the vindication of the spirit the presence of the spirit in the life of a believer is irrefutable evidence of God's victory on the cross because the only way the spirit of God could indwell me is if I was completely forgiven and the same is true for you right right okay next to seen by angels proclaimed among the nations I won't belabor it I just want you to uh, think about this we confess that he was witnessed by heaven and earth, both. The Bible says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them all. He made a public spectacle. He disarmed the principalities and powers. That spectacle was not merely witnessed by humans on earth, was it? 
It was also witnessed by powers and principalities, both demonic and elect angels. They saw all of that happen. And so they witnessed, it was a public spectacle in both the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, again, of the victory of Jesus and the demonstration of the fact that he is, in fact, who he says that he is. Then we have, was believed on in the world and was taken up to glory. So we confess that he was received in earth and heaven. So if you think about this, and the other thing I wanted to say about the seen by angels and preached among the nations, it's interesting to me that the angels were the least removed from him. And the Gentiles were the farthest removed from him. And yet, everyone witnessed it. Have you ever thought about that? Because remember, prior to, uh, prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, non-Jews would have been as far away as you could possibly be. But yet, everyone witnessed So then we have believed on in the world, taken up to glory. So we see his reception in both geographies, earth and heaven. And back uh, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 17, some weeks ago we looked at where Paul said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason... I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See how Paul brings both realms together to make the point. So here's the, let's, let's try to put this together. Because of these six things, we can and must conduct ourselves in a way that brings glory to God. Because Jesus accomplished these things, that they're irrefutable facts that have happened, that we live in the consequence of, that we know these are things that happen. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we must conduct ourselves in a way that brings him glory. But again, well, what does that mean? So here's the point. The point is, is that what we believe and confess about Christ is everything because it shapes the way we live. Remember, what are we, what is this whole text about? It's about the mystery of godliness, which is a change internally that is visible externally, right? So that's the context of all of this. So here we are. Believe and confess is going to shape how we live. So if we were going to make, uh, boil this down to a principle, it would be this. If we get the truth wrong, we get our lives wrong. We cannot. So, so here's the thing. I don't know of any area in my life, obviously, where I have the truth wrong. But here's what I do know, that wherever 
there are little pockets of error, my life reflects in an in a erroneous way. Now, if I knew what it was, I would obviously address it. But the point is, is that wherever error exists in your belief, it manifests itself in your life. So whenever God reveals something to you, whenever you have these aha moments, whether you're in church or you're in D group or you're just having Bible study, when you have an aha moment with God, do not make the mistake of just sort of containing that moment in you and your knowledge. Always immediately turn and address and say, how has this manifested itself. In other words, in light of what God has just shown me, something has got to be changed. Because if I believed X and I see clearly now that it's Y, I've got to say, where is X? How has X manifested itself in my life? So many times we, we treat our relationship with the truth as just a Mental exercise, that is a complete mistake, as you're going to see tonight. That is a a terrible mistake to make. We are not here week in and week out. I don't preach my guts out to you so that you can know a bunch of stuff. No. This isn't seminary. This is how to live in a way that glorifies God together as his people. And there's a lot of things that can only be learned. I don't want to get into Sunday, but it can only be learned in the context of community. It's the only way they can be learned. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. So he immediately moves into now... The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness or consciences are seared. So we've already, we already know from this letter that Paul's already said there are some that are going to make shipwreck of their faith, right? We already know this. We already know there's false teachers. We already have had conversations about this. But now what we're seeing is the Spirit expressly says that these times are coming when some will depart from the faith. Now, every time we come across a text, whether it be here or especially those of you that have If you've ever encountered Hebrews 6, then you've, you know, I've probably written more emails and had more conversations about that text than than most other texts in the Bible. Because people get all, people who have been exposed to legalism. Well, here's one of the good barometers to, you know, how you've been exposed to legalism. Every time you come across a text that addresses apostasy, you fall apart. Oh my goodness. You can lose your salvation. Some will depart from the faith. Depart from the faith. 
is a reference to apostasy. It's always apostasy. It's clear. So I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this. You know, if you want to know about apostasy, just go online and go to Hebrews 6 in the uh, Hebrew series. And I think I did three weeks on it. But anyway, just so that you're clear and everybody knows, I don't want you leaving here all tangled up tonight. Apostates, these are professing Christians. Remember what I said last Sunday? Does believing in God and saying that you're going to heaven when you die is meaningless? It doesn't mean a thing. The demons believe. Professing Christians who associate with those who truly believe the gospel but defect after believing lies and deception, thus revealing their true nature as unconverted. Because once you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as the sixth statement said at the end of chapter 3, then that is an irrevocable process. That, that can't be, you didn't behave into it, you can't behave out of it. It's illogical. If you could lose salvation, it can't be called salvation. But in your mind, if you've been exposed to legalism, it's very easy for you to chase that rabbit down that hole. It's very easy because you've just been conditioned. But 1 John 2, 19, I put it there in your handout. They went out from us, but they were not of us. How do we know that? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Listen, saved people can never become unsaved. It is an absolute impossibility. It's not even logical. But yet, there's whole denominations of heretics who believe such things. But you have to deny half the Bible. I mean, on every level, it's just completely ridiculous. But some will depart from the faith by deceiving themselves. Notice, they deceive themselves at the hands of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So that gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about how the enemy is striving to work against you and me all the time. See, the devil is both a tempter into sin and a deceiver into error and they always go hand in hand it's either a then b or b then a but they always work together so what does he want to do well he wants to he wants to tempt you into sin typically what is the most effective way to tempt you into sin deceive you into error which will then lead you makes you vulnerable to sin so what is the best defense against sin obviously it's truth 
So therefore, what happens in the same way that we're, we're, remember, we're talking about godliness, this internal transformation that leads to an external realization or revelation. Okay, the same thing is true in the negative. That is wherever we deviate from truth, we then become vulnerable to sin. So the deviation from truth reveals itself. The deviation internally reveals itself externally in sin. So when you address sin in your own life, or maybe you address sin in somebody in your family or some loved one or, you, or somebody that you care about and you have to have a difficult conversation with them. Listen, the conversation is not about the sin. The sin is just what clued you in to the, the deception. Wherever there's sin, there's a deception that has enabled this sin to operate. Now, now, how does this work? It's the same way. How does this work in a lost person? Well, the reason why a lost person is just wide open in every direction is because why? The Bible says they're blinded. Now, a saved person is not blinded, but a saved person can be deceived can, and can deceive themselves into situations where they then do things they ought not do. Absolutely. Truth is the defense against sin. So wherever there's sin, the problem is not the sin. The sin is pointing you to there's a truth problem underneath the sin. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So this issue of conscience. Remember we talked about this about uh, a year ago. It's the part of us that warns and convicts. And everyone has a conscience. And what we learn when we study the passages in First uh, and Second Corinthians about conscience is, is that believers should always obey their conscience. But your conscience isn't always right. Now you can get confused about this if you don't think it through. Your conscience is not infallible. Sometimes your conscience is wrong and will lead you astray. But you should never disobey it. Why? Because it's always sin to disobey it. Because when you disobey your conscience, you're doing something that you believe is wrong and you're doing it anyway. You see? So I've had a lot of conversations with people where they've come to me and they're all twisted up, Christians, and they're twisted up about something and they're, they're condemned about something, they feel guilty about something, they feel convicted about something, and it's their conscience is just eating them up, and we have to recalibrate their conscience. And I wonder when that happens. As a matter of fact, I thought about this today. I thought about all the conversations I've had over the years with people whose conscience were all tangled up about something, and the, their conscience was wrong, and every single time they had been exposed to legalism. Every single time. 
And, and when, it, when I first dealt with that a few times, it always kind of puzzled me because it's something that I haven't experienced. Well, now, you know, years later, I figured out why. Because I was never exposed to legalism. But boy, your conscience will just eat you alive. But here's the thing. You obey it and then get, seek counsel and figure it out. Get in the word of God, sort it out, whatever the case may be. But don't. Here's what I'm telling you. This is what you need to understand about your conscience. Do not, under any circumstances, ignore your conscience. That is disastrous. That's what happened right here. See, a Christian's conscience is fed by truth. So if your conscience is off, you just need to feed it, which is why, for example, let's say you grew up in legalism and then you start coming to church here. Well, every single time you come in these doors, you get a little healthier and a little healthier and a little healthier. Why? Because it doesn't matter what's being taught. It's always going to be the truth, and the truth is always going to shape and mold and direct your conscience. And so you need, what you need is giant doses of truth to sort your conscience out. That's what you need. That's how that works. But by continually ignoring your conscience, oh man. So when, when lives go devastatingly bad, I'm talking about uh, lost people, saved people, devastatingly bad. When the, when, when the rails come off, when you end up in a situation that you never could have imagined yourself in and you can't possibly see your way out of, you have perfected ignoring your conscience. Or you wouldn't be there. That's the only way you get there. You see? And believe me, don't you think for one second. You can, you can be born again. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't play games. Don't play fast and loose with your conscience and think it's not going to get you. It's going to get you. It's just going to work out a little bit differently. God, if the Spirit of God's in you and you start ignoring your conscience, He's going he's gonna to get your attention one way or the other. Then you're going you're gonna to basically enter into the Jonah principle. That's what's going to happen. But So what happens is when we ignore our conscience, it allows us to drift into sin unhindered because what is the hindrance to sin? The conscience. And what makes the conscience, what, what puts that buffer there? The truth. So if you don't know any truth, so, so my experience was the opposite of my wife's. I grew up never going to church, having no context whatsoever, never saw a Bible, never read a Bible, never heard, didn't know the gospel, never heard the gospel. So my conscience never bothered me about anything. As a matter of fact, I think back and think, I didn't even have a conscience. You know, if I had, where did I get it? 
How would it have happened? You see, the only time my conscience ever activated was something that I had been taught in my childhood. So maybe with regards to maybe being rude to somebody or or, uh, respecting my elders or whatever the case may be. That would be the only thing that would ever fire off my conscience. But morality, non-existent. As soon as I get saved, as soon as I start reading the Bible, boom, it's it's a, a, a completely new world. I have this whole new operation going on inside. But now, for those of you that grew up in legalism, whew, see, you got a whole different battle going on there. Whenever doctrine slips, whenever belief slides, whenever deception happens, morals are going to shift. Every single time. It's going to be visible externally. It will always be that way. No matter how much you think you're going to hide it or how much it's not. So don't confine your relationship to the truth to intellectual uh, property. You know, it's not just an intellectual endeavor. So what did they do? What is this deceitful spirits and teaching of demons? Verse 3. Here's where it's going to get super practical. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now this, this ought to be shocking to you. It ought to be shocking to anyone who's unfamiliar with this and go, what in the world is going on? Of all the things, you're telling me that this deceitful spirits and teaching of demons and this is what they're teaching? Like, why, of all the things to teach, my, the first question you ought to ask is, why are they teaching don't get married and don't eat certain foods? And then the other question is, why would anyone listen to that? How is that? Leading people into apostasy. See, if you think about it, most false doctrines are very simple to understand why people believe them because they pander to the flesh, right? Yes. So in other words, if heresy normally operates in the realm of uh, telling us what we want to hear, right? So why would imagine, why would imagine that the church gets infiltrated by this false doctrine of don't get married, don't eat certain foods. You're thinking to yourself, well, I, I ain't falling for that. That seems like the reverse. But is it? See, what's obvious would be Teach the things that God forbids is okay. And the things that, but what we have here is the things that God says are okay should be forbidden. That's different. Think about this. Marriage and food represent the two most basic appetites of the human body. And both can be very, very easily and often are abused, aren't they? 
And so these were taught to be unclean appetites, things not to be enjoyed. Again, to which you should be saying to yourself, help me understand why why this tactic of the enemy and why would people jump on this bus? Because believe me, people jump on it. It's highly effective. Why? Well, it's what's called asceticism. It still exists today. It's rampant today. Some of you come from uh, church backgrounds that are built on asceticism. And it's the doctrine that a person can attain a high spiritual and moral state by practicing self-denial. And so there are whole denominations where people are seen as more spiritual and set apart because of the things that they don't participate in, the things that they deny themselves for God. Now you're starting to go, oh, yeah. See, now you can start to see where the flesh starts to get in. So if you want to be close to God, if you want closeness to God, then you abstain from these things. And believe me, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people will buy right into it and won't even ask a question. And even today, we'll just go, well, it's just the way they believe, but you don't see it for the What, what does the Bible say right here? Like for all of you that come from a Catholic background, do you understand what is being said right here? Do you, do you, do you understand that the sex scandal within the Catholic Church is the external manifestation of the internal, you see this? It says right here, it's a demonic. It's demonic. And, and, and people think, well, you know, it's, it's just a personal choice. No, it's not. It's de- the Bible says it's demonic because he says this is a demonic heresy. And then he says what it is. There's no way around it. See, the problem was not in our sinfulness, but our humanness. See, what is, the, what is this an attack on? Being married is not a sin. Eating, you know, certain foods is not a sin. So it's an attack on, not on sinfulness, on humanness. See, some of us are called to be single, the Bible teaches. And if God calls you to be single, well, then that's fine. You have the calling of singleness on you. And we're all called to be self-controlled. We're called to uh, uh, seasons of fasting where we abstain from the eating of food. But we're not doing this. This is abstaining from marriage and abstaining from certain food to achieve some spirituality. 
Some of you grew up your whole life. It's normal for you on certain days of the week not to eat certain foods. None of this is ringing. I mean, like it's right here. It's undeniable. And you have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who just walk along. It could not be any clearer. So why? Why is this, what is the, what, what makes this compelling to believe? What? Well, the answer is, remember, the Bible gives you the problem before it gives you the, so when it gives you the answer, you just need to look back because you'll find where it's the answer to the problem that it already told you. So what is the problem? If you think back, not the problem. The problem is there's this false teaching. We know what the false teaching is, but the Bible's already told us the problem. See, it will appease the problem, which is a seared conscience. That's the reason for it. Now, you have to think about this for a minute to really get, the, get this deep down inside and understand it. So by creating this environment where you're more spiritual, if you follow these rules, which again, you never thought it was demonic not to eat certain things on certain days because you're like, what's the big deal? Who cares? Well, you won't think that after tonight. Here's what's happening. It creates a second conscience that is controlled by human activity. You see, this is the thing. When you sear your conscience, then you're sort of left out there in no man's land. You know, here's the problem. You know that you've got yourself in a precarious situation because it's a disaster. A seared conscience leads to disastrous things. So what do you do? You can't just stay out there, just go, you know, because you know what's happening to your life. So you have to rebuild the conscience, but you rebuild it in a false way. You rebuild a conscience that you control, because if you can implant a conscience that is controlled by human effort, or human activity, then then what happens? See, you you, think about our society today. So you get to a place where you are unhappy with who you are, and you're unhappy with the way that you relate to the world. You're just, you're just miserable. You're unhappy. You don't know why you're miserable. Your conscience is, is seared, so it's led you to become miserable. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to stay miserable? No. We're going to rebuild a new conscience that's based on our activity, and then we're going to say, you know what I'm going to do? 
based on this new conscience that I've erected that's not even a real conscience, but I've erected this that says that I am the one who can seek after. So I'm going to change my gender. I'm going to identify as something new. I'm going to, and everyone has to go along with that. How does that, that's exactly how that happened. That's exactly. And the reason why you're pulling your hair out saying to yourself, what in the world some of you have dealt with people and you're going, what is wrong with you? Why do you refuse to listen to simple logic? Because they have a, a second conscience. And so you're just running into that second conscience. See, some of you are thinking right now, like you want to go home and call all your Catholic relatives and tell them that, and guess what's going to happen? Boom. All you're going to do is run into the second conscience. That's what's going to happen. You're going to sound like a, like a, like a lunatic to them. They have this in their Bible. You build a second conscience, you can, you can justify anything. And here's the beauty of it. It makes you the hero. See, I'm close to God. Why? Because of what I do. Because I abstain from this. Because, I, because I'm so self-disciplined that I can think about what happened. You know what, what this heresy led to? This, it led to this whole monastic period of history where spiritual people were leaving their wives and their children and going out into the deserts and and living in silence and not talking to anybody for years at a time so they could be closer to God. They're all whack jobs. Running around in dresses, not talking to people. It's the same thing. Now we're just wearing dresses. It just hasn't changed. See, the truth is you cannot gain right standing with God by what you do or what you don't do. That, there's just, it's, there's no, there's no, it, it has no bearing. Right standing with God can never be based on your activity. But a legalist has been trained that it can. So if you come from legalism, you're going to buy this hook, line, and sinker. Don't you see? This is custom-made This is the perfect lure to snag you every single time as a fish. Every single time. To me, I think it's insanity. But to most of the people that I love, they swim right off, right to this lure every single time. Because it's conditioned you to believe that you, you're, you, you get some credit. You got skin in the game. That you're part of the, you know, you may, Jesus is the hero, but you're the sub-hero. It's just a false holiness. That's all it is. So he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory. 
and somehow we're going to make our activity make us more godly? (laughs) Do you see how insane that is? Look at what he did. Look at what the gospel's laying out in front of you. Like, do you think these six things just dropped out of the sky? No. God's saying, just take these six pillars and then try to look at this truth and try to figure out how you can make yourself more spiritual. There's zero chance. All you have to do is let the truth guide you. For everyone, verse 4, Now the practical part. Let's turn the the tide. For everyone created by God, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now this is just such an amazing verse, these two verses right here. So first of all, on the surface, well, what God created is good, obviously. We know that from Genesis, that what God created was wonderful. It's very good. And how, could, how, how did God create everything? Well, the way he wanted to do it, which is the best way it could be done. But was God limited in his creation? Was the God that breathed something out of nothing? Could he have, could he? I'm just asking a question here because this is where I need you to really interact with what I'm saying before we go home tonight. Could he have done it any way he wanted to? So let's be more specific. We're all adults here. Could God, if he wanted to, could God have created a scenario whereby a husband and a wife consummate a marriage with a handshake? He could have. Praise Jesus, he didn't, but he could have. (laughs) Because I feel super awkward for all the people's hands I've shaked. On so many levels, that's wrong. But he could have done that, right? Could he have made us? Could he have made you where you only eat one meal a month? And that meal is a specific food that's bland and tasteless, but yet has all the nutrients that you need to be perfectly healthy. Could he have done that? Are there examples of that in existence? Like the first thing I thought of is I thought of, thank God I'm not a cow. Not just because, you know, I want to eat a cow, but the fact that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, doesn't matter what day of the week, what time of day, what is it? Grass. What do you got? Grass. What's it? Grass. That's all you got. Grass. Is there anything better? I don't know, because that's all I've had. Grass. He could have made you grass. Where are you going? Out in the yard. I'm hungry. And it could have just provided all the nutrients we wanted. But he didn't do that. Wonder why he didn't do that. Wonder what it is that he's trying to teach us in his creation. See, he wants, he, he wants us to understand him. Truth teaches us about him so that we know his personality. We understand who he is. 
we realize that to deny the goodness of God's creation is to deny God's own goodness. Do you know why? Do you know why God created marriage? Why he created men and women with the, for lack of a better term, plumbing that they have? Because he's just good. You know what? He thought, I could see it. They're having a a powwow in the Trinity between the three of them. That's creation time. And they're having a conversation. And God's like, well, you know, we could do this. We could make it this if we wanted to. We could do a little pinky thing. That could be, you know. You know, like, hey, how you doing? Whoop, I'm pregnant. I don't know. It could be anything. But look at what he did. Look at what he did. Look at how he, look, look at what he did. He said, I don't know, these morons, they're just going to eat grass. These other morons, they're just going to eat bananas. That's all you get. Like that might be good day one or day two, but day 780, I'm sick of bananas. But no, for us, it's a totally different He filled us with taste buds and creativity and all kinds of spices and abilities and aromas. And he gave us this amazing sense of smell that's not used for some, you know, we don't use the smell to hunt things. It's just for pleasure. It's just wonderful or sometimes displeasure. It's just the goodness of God. It's God saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm good like this. So when he declared that it was very good, he meant it was very good in Genesis 1.31. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. So what's the proper response that we should have to creation? Hmm? We should accept God's verdict. That his creation is good. We should just admit that it's good. And then beyond that, we should thank him. So did you notice that it says for these things that if we receive them with thanksgiving, it's made holy? What is that? How is it made holy? Well, because when we, we receive his gifts correctly, then he's glorified in our enjoyment of them. He's glorified. That's what it means made holy. So this is a life-changing thing when you stop and think about it. This really will, will just be a complete game changer. See, sin is not just bad things that we do. It's also the enjoyment of good things to the exclusion of God. This is what this text is teaching. 
that when you say no to marriage because I'm going to be more, it's going to make me more spiritual or I'm not going to eat certain foods because it's going to make me more spiritual, it's sin. It's sin. Because you're rejecting the good gifts of God, which is rejecting the goodness of God, and you're also rejecting the the opportunity that we have to glorify God in situations. See, made holy. So this is what I think you need to sort of take with you when you leave today. That receiving rightly, thanking him personally, being conscious, it, it, it makes a meal a sacred event. But it's not just that. Listen, your cup of coffee in the morning, it's because it ain't mine. Your cup of coffee. The sunrise. You know, when my little girl hugs me and I put my arms around her and she puts her arms around me. I mean, we still got problems. But see, that's, that's a, a sacred gift that God gave. Just like a sunrise or a cup of coffee. Your friendships. You got to receive your friendships correctly. See, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See what the Bible says? Let the Bible shape, shape you. Let the truth shape your understanding, for it's made holy. When you thank him personally for it, this this posture of gratitude for all the little amazing things in our lives. That when you put something in your mouth and it's, it's, it's just amazing, that's a gift from God. When you laugh together with people that you love, it's a gift from God. It's a gift. And we don't want to, we don't want to, forsake that first corinthians 10 13 so whether you eat or drink but this is where we mess up we miss the the thrust of that verse it's not about eating or drinking those are simply examples to get your head around or whatever you do Whatever you do, that's the thrust of that verse. Do it for the glory of God. How do you do it for the glory of God? The Bible teaches that you receive it with thanksgiving, that you're grateful. Does that mean you have to thank God for every single thing personally in prayer? No, but you should have an attitude and a posture of gratitude towards God, and you should thank him. For all the good things that that you can think of. And you should be grateful in the moments. Of those moments. Be grateful. I always, you know, try to just give you some practical thing to, you know, but you know I love to watch things eat other things. It's very exciting to me. 
And, and sometimes you're watching and, you know, and, and there, there's, a, there's a, a whole field full of caribou or something. And a cougar comes along and he's stalking them around, whatever. Eventually he gets one and he eats it. Do you know what the other ones do, all the other caribou do? They just go on with their life. There's not wailing and gnashing of teeth. They just move on. They're like, well, Bob got eight. We're not like that. See? So, when was the last time you had a... So, I'm looking around here and I'm thinking of things as I'm looking at you. Some of you in here, you need to have a spirit of gratitude... Because you miss your kids. You miss them. You wish they lived closer. Or you wish they'd come home. But you're not a caribou. And when you miss your kids, it's the goodness of God. See? It's the goodness of God. When you go to a funeral and you feel sad, that's a gift. That's a gift. We sin when we don't recognize the giver behind every good gift. And it's not only that, but what about what about the things that we have a tendency to overlook because we don't think of them as God's good gifts because we did it. Mm-mm. Even man-made beauty. As a believer, you should realize that it's a reflection of God's image in us. So when you hear beautiful music that somebody wrote or you see a beautiful painting that somebody painted or a beautiful building that somebody designed or whatever the case may be, you can, you, that's a display of the glory of God. Because you know what you've never seen? You've never seen a building that a caribou designed. And one of the reasons why I like to watch things eat other things is I turn the volume down when I watch because I hate the people who talk. Because they go, oh, look, it's the blue whale, one of the smartest creatures on earth. You're a moron. That idiot that's never built anything, can't cook nothing, can't do nothing. I don't care if their brain's the size of a school bus. They can't do anything but swim and eat krill. They're not that dang smart. People, on the other hand, just use your brain. I mean, you know, have you ever walked up and said, Tone, bro, you haven't noticed you got all them barnacles on your side? No, I'd get them off. But not the smartest animal in the world. They roll around with them, just growing there. Man made, it's beautiful. See, to not live in this manner is to live like an atheist. 
That's how I used to live. Before God saved me. So, we experience a fuller delight of God's good gifts when we respond to them by giving Him honor through gratitude because it becomes worship. It's worship. That's worship. It becomes holy. That's worship. When you're grateful, do you know that you're worshiping God in your gratitude? Do you know that? It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to enjoy God's good gifts without giving thought to Him is to miss the deepest enjoyment of them. I want you to understand something. There's a very high possibility that all of us have have a, a litany of things in our life that we should and could be enjoying to a far greater level than we currently are because we're not grateful. Seriously. Even things I pick on y'all about is true. Be grateful. That's a gift from God. That dumb dog every time I go home that greets me like he hasn't seen me in a month. It's a gift. I mean, he's dumb, but it's a gift. I mean, like he'd walk around with barnacles, I promise you. He don't know. But you know what? He doesn't care. And if I get mad at him five seconds later, he don't even remember that happened. That's a gift. See? That's a gift. I just want you to realize the purpose for them is to lead us to him. That's what it is. Gratitude takes us to the Lord. That's what it does. When we get to chapter 6, verse 17, Paul's going to say, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us know you in a deeper way. We're grateful and thankful. Now we just pray that we'd have a heart of gratitude and that our lives would be, we would experience things the way that we could because we'd recognize the gift that you've given us. You didn't have to, but you did. Thank you so much. You're so good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you. Have a good evening.